today I'm going to do the, um, I'll basically like open the portal to the last part of the course, which is the um, record of utopian experiments um, that our parents and grandparents engaged in. Uh, and um, one of the first things we have to grapple with is the scale. The sheer number of large, small, and medium-sized utopian experiments conducted in um, the 60s. And by the 60s, I mean the period from 1965 to 1977, which is what most people mean when they say the 60s. Nobody means 1960 when they say the 60s. Um, you know, where like Eisenhower is president and uh, there's, you know, still lots of lobotomies, domestic violence. And nobody really thinks the 60s have stopped when, you know, they make Harold and Maude and Cat Stevens becomes a popular musician. So uh, there's that period, right, where um, the idea of trying to create some sort of utopian community um, became popular. And by popular, I don't simply mean that a lot of people thought it was good. It was popular in the sense that a lot of people felt entitled to do it. And uh, that's, uh, that's a much more interesting kind of popularity. The idea that um, so many people would see themselves as leaders or participants in a thing that might or might not be highly valued uh, by their subculture or their community. Mm -hmm. So this is sort of the, the central thing about um, uh, this last period uh, that we're looking at uh, when we think of utopian communities. Now, obviously there are some larger continuities and normally if this were a regular course, I would connect it to the 19th century seeker movement um, and the Gilded Age utopias I talked about last time. I'd show a through line from Emerson and Thoreau back to Wordsworth up to the present. But I've done that lecture several times and it's available in various other courses. Uh, if you haven't heard it, it's pretty good. And you can find it really well in the uh, Los Altos course archive. So instead, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to seek out a different kind of cultural context, in many ways, a larger one. Because when I said the Americas, right, we have all of these cases from the Hispanic world, and we're not going to see them really intersect with the Anglo world until the Zapatistas in 1994. Uh, we see two very siloed stories culturally, intellectually, linguistically. And so what we're really doing is a course about two different places that happen to about each other, Spanish America and Anglo America. Now, maybe I should say Latin America rather than Spanish America, I'm back and forth on that. But Latin America and Anglo America, whatever you want to call it, are fairly different social contracts. You know, as uh, we talked about in the first uh, class, Kenya Sares points out that there are these similarities at the beginning around ideas of demonology and holiness uh, in his Puritan Conquistador's book. 
But basically, we do see pretty divergent paths when it comes to utopianism. And those aren't going to intersect yet. So I want to say a bit about what is Anglo-America and how should we understand it as a unit? Because if we don't understand what Anglo-America is, then the reception of many of these intentional communities will seem surprising. If we don't really know what Anglo-America is, we can't get to how it works. So, right, there's this big swath of territory east of the Appalachian Mountains that the British get hold of in the 1600s. And it basically has two parts. It has a northern part where most of the population is free, most of the population is white, and um, the economy is based on subsistence agriculture uh, paid for by very high mortality occupations, mining, whaling, logging, etc. Um, occupations that chew up young men leave a very favorable gender balance in the society for middle-aged men. And um, that's America north of Chesapeake Bay, right? All the way up through, uh, all the way up to Newfoundland. And then there's south of the Chesapeake and the Chesapeake. And that's an area that goes all the way south to uh, Guiana and Trinidad. And it's based on plantation labor um, and a, uh, a highly anti-democratic social contract. Uh, young men who are honorable and white uh, aren't in high mortality trades. They're in high mortality lifestyles. A lot of dueling, courting, this sort of thing, sexual violence, etc. And we see something mirrored in the working class, young white men of, uh, of those places as well. Uh, tremendous amounts of violence perpetrated on indigenous women in particular uh, through that area. Uh, so we see two very different Americas. Um, an America that is largely white, largely free and based on, and largely kills young men with capitalism. And then you see another America that is barely white, mostly unfree, and based on a kind of atavistic honor politics. And then um, this weird thing happens in the um, 1760s, uh, where the British have to pay for the Seven Years' War, uh, which they've won. And they won it largely by creating a force called the Continental Army. So they don't have to send a bunch of troops to the Americas in order to win the war in the Americas. Uh, and uh, second in command of the Continental Army is, of course, George Washington. Uh, so the British create this institution that spans these two realities, but not all of these two realities. It doesn't really touch the Caribbean. It doesn't really touch Acadia. It doesn't touch Newfoundland. And so Anglo-American politics seem pretty simple. There are these two social contracts. They have nothing to do with each other uh, until this situational alliance develops in the 1760s 
when the British soak the colonists for the cost of the war. And uh, suddenly the economic interests of highly culturally disparate places converge. And there is a deal to be made by the people of Virginia who sit at the, um, uh, at the junction between these two social contracts to create something new. And so we have the American uh, Revolution and the American Revolution, like all important revolutions, has to be hijacked, right? Because a successful revolution is one where everybody goes into the town square who's upset and eventually everybody's in the town square and then there's a new government. That means that for revolutions to succeed, they usually require incredibly broad support and for revolutions to be coherent, they are typically hijacked almost immediately by an organized minority. Maybe it's um, Khomeini and the uh, clergy in Iran. Maybe it's, um, uh, it's Vladimir Lenin and his bank robbing friends. Um, in this case, it's a group of people who are all part of a weird um, supper club coffee house movement called liberalism. And uh, the liberals seize control of the revolution and produce the United States of America. But they don't just produce the United States of America. This is something that everyone forgets. Nobody fucking lived in Ontario at this point. The Iroquois Confederacy is completely hollowed out between the morning wars and the epidemics. There are almost no indigenous people living in this benighted North shore of Lake Ontario. Um, and uh, there are no Anglo colonists there either. The, the province of Ontario, which I'm sitting in right now, was created out of nothing in the 1780s by war refugees from all kinds of warmer, nicer places all over what had become the United States of America. But these people hated freedom so much that uh, they had to um, create Toronto. And uh, while Toronto may be a little more hep these days than it was then, uh, Toronto has never fully forgotten its heritage. In fact, the desire to embarrass those people is really the only thing to explain the success of the Ford brothers. Because there's only one way you can hurt a member of the family compact or a United Empire loyalist. It is through shame. It's, uh, it's, it's by embarrassing them at a dinner party. So the thing that will become Canada comes into being right away as a result of the American Revolution. And it becomes into being right away as culturally distinct. Um, its economic basis can't contain the Southern social contract. So even if people come from the South, they have no way of keeping up that way of being. On the other hand, this is a society that profoundly worships three values, um, loyalty, order, and continuity. Uh, that is what the foundation of Canada is. And so Anglo-Canadians uh, based in Ontario or Upper Canadians, as they were known then, um, Upper Canadians have never been a particularly large group. 
they come out of a single migration family. It is this 1780s migration north out of the future United States of America. So um, those people arrive and although, uh, as I was discussing last class, they have a, some profound effects on immigration policy, in 1896, they lose control of immigration policy. So this desire for a pure um, English Canada is, um, is something that continues after the beginning of the, the 20th century. And by the time they get into the business of fighting for white immigrants, right, they, they, they're at the bottom of the barrel right? They've got their pick of like Slavs and uh, Southern Italians. Uh, and they're still labeling Jews Slavs or Turks because that's, um, that's a categorization scheme at this time, as good a theory as any. Uh, so they, um, so this is not, so now they set up a constitutional order which maintains their power. Upper Canada effectively runs English Canada and French Canada uh, until um, the, uh, this century. And uh, when that elite eventually had to go into partnership with another regional elite. But that doesn't happen until the 21st century. The Upper Canadians have mm -hmm. tremendous uh, political hegemony and yet they become a demographic minority in their own territory very, very quickly. While there are regions, uh, there are places like, you know, Napanee, birthplace of Avril Lavigne, uh, uh, Belleville, and this little area called Loyalist Country. There are towns of just Loyalists, like Kingston. But for the most part, um, liberal immigration policy destroys the demographic majority of this group. Um, but the other thing is that while this is going on, the Yankee elite of the Northern United States discover how little they have in common with the people they've decided to make a country with, right? That very quickly things deteriorate so that less than a century after the country's formed, um, it decides to have the first civil war in the world using machine guns. Uh, that's, you know, and it does not take that long these two elites have very little in common with each other. And so especially after the Civil War and Reconstruction and the idea that the relationship between the planter elites of the South and the Yankee elites of the North will always have to be brokered. It will never be based on an affinity. Um, once that reality sets in, one of the things we see is the Yankee <coughs> turns north. Um, it's not excited by Canada. It pretends not to notice it. But the fact is that um, there is lots of cultural interpenetration between the Yankees who stayed and the Yankees who left. The um, um, Van Yar and the Nalder. Uh, the, uh, uh, these, these groups. And in fact, they, they develop a lot of cultural similarities and those cultural similarities are uh, hammered out in places like Muskoka. 
where all of the major uh, American uh, families had their summer cottages at one time with the place that that was that was the place where everybody bought up property who made money during prohibition the rockefellers and uh the um other gangsters on their way up uh so these are fairly closely tied elites but only at the most elite level muskoka is a community of 2000 people in the summer at this time and you've got you know 1500 great american lineages and 500 canadian ones and that's that's what you've got but when it comes to the level of the culture of working class yankees working class canadians um these substantially diverge and have very little direct contact and that's important when we get into this set of events that happens after the Second World War. So moving forward to the end of the Second World War, um, as I've discussed in other classes, um, everybody is really worried and really prepared for the end of the Second World War because demobilization at the end of the First World War uh, nearly destroyed capitalism. It uh, caused the Russian Revolution, but even in... Canada, as I've described it, the federal government had to invade the province of Manitoba during demobilization. Um, there was the Winnipeg general strike. The cops joined the general strike. The RCMP joined the general strike. So they had to send the fucking army to uh, the third largest city in the country to take back its jurisdiction in 1919. So the end of the first world war everybody had a near miss you just can't bring a lot of men home that you just taught a lot about how to kill people and not give them like jobs or things to do um uh, not try and like get them set up with a nice girl and you know get their teeth brushed things like this this is if you don't do this civilization might collapse so whereas the world was woefully unprepared for demobilization at the end of the First World War and it produced vast human tragedy, at the end of the Second World War, boy, were we ready for demobilization. And in America, that took the form of the GI Bill. The GI Bill was a guarantee to uh, any man coming back from the front that um, he... Uh, would either get full freight, everything paid for, a university degree, or enough money um, in direct grants and loan guarantees to start a small business and keep it running for a while. And that was just the formal guarantees. Society itself was way more panicked about the men coming back than their government was. So there was a lot of what we might call the GI Bill from below. Uh, mass firings of women from uh, any job seen as remote <clears throat> family. Um, whole redesign of cities to uh, make sure that you could imprison women in houses with no sidewalks and no way to get, no way to escape. Uh, these single car families on the cul-de-sac streets, 
This is the world Betty Friedan describes in The Feminine Mystique. This is where the, uh, the great lobotomy holocaust takes place during the 1950s of uh, women who didn't seem satisfied with this just um, underwent brain surgery on an enormous scale. So um, this, uh, this world that the men are returning to is a pretty fucking sweet deal. Uh, all kinds of jobs have been cleared out. Houses have been prepared. Uh, women have been terrorized. Uh, and there's government money and a degree, a credential. So um, the uh, uh, so the baby boomers uh, are conceived by this group of people who receive tremendous government aid, but um, um, and what, but one of the consequences of that government aid is that because the United States and Canada and Western Europe are already focused on the fight against communism. This stuff is rolled out in a way that is um, a genuine attack on class privilege. America is trying to show that it can deliver through capitalism the kind of um, leveling of the playing field around inherited wealth that uh, <clears throat> the USSR promises to. And so the GI Bill, it has a leveling effect and what it produces is something America is already awash in, which is class confusion. Americans have always resisted having a consciousness of class. Um, Canadians, to a lesser degree, Anglo-Americans generally, though, we act in class has extra power over us because we refuse to acknowledge it and pretend it isn't in operation when it's doing things around us. So um, uh, the only way we can talk about it is to subsume class into the category of race, describe something where racialized people are having an experience because of their disproportionate representation in a class, and then we can sort of talk about it. But it never allows us to talk about like white working class people, for instance. Uh, they're just uh, a basket of deplorables. Uh, so... We don't really have the vocabulary, but the vocabulary seems unnecessary in the 1950s because it looks like, like Eisenhower and Stalin have agreed that we're moving towards a classless society globally. So um, this causes, I think, baby boomers to be raised in a very strange way. They're raised by people experiencing unprecedented material abundance, unprecedented social order, unprecedented class mobility. But these are also highly disoriented, traumatized people, um, male or female. Um, people who are raising kids in the 1950s are, uh, are, are highly psychiatrized, heavily drugged, um, and even if they weren't, would be totally disoriented about their class position. It's very hard to communicate to baby boomers any kind of accurate map of the world or what to expect. But one of the few things, one of the few discourses that helped to give order to all this was this idea of something called progress. And that, that this included the idea that whatever our parents had materially 
um, will do better than that that there is this steady upward trajectory that we are on now where equality, uh, economic power, all of these things, everything is just going straight up. And uh, this sends um, the baby boom generation uh, into, uh, into universities in the 1960s and 70s um, very coddled in certain ways, but also already profoundly disoriented. And then for the most coddled generation that human beings have had, this coincides with another, with the flip side of the great society of John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson. As with income equality under Eisenhower, as with high marginal tax rates for the rich under Eisenhower, um, the Americans were trying to win the Cold War and there was an overwhelming foreign policy imperative. Anything the Russians promise, um, anything the Russians promise. It's a good point about family estrangement. Thank you. Uh, the um, anything that um, they promise, America will do better. Well, that's that means one sort of thing in Dixie. It means that America is going to send in the National Guard and invade Alabama again to integrate the schools. But it's the same idea in Vietnam. It's the same principle. Whatever is necessary, whatever the Russians do, we'll match it. There is no area of competition in this Cold War where we won't match the Russians. They want a dirty proxy war in the middle of nowhere. We'll give them a dirty proxy war in the middle of nowhere. And you have to remember there's this grand Yankee tradition of conscription. Yankees love conscription. Once they run out of whales to kill and trees to cut down, this is the best way of getting rid of young men who are difficult. Um, So there's a really strong ethos of voluntary military service among the Yankees, right? Already, uh, people like John McCain come out of a multi-century tradition around like trying to re-embody the Roman citizen soldier, blah, blah, blah. So... This generation is suddenly exposed to, uh, (laughs) yes, bring back the draft once I'm old enough not to qualify. It's a solid plan. I, um, well, and every presidential candidate always has some weird civil draft plan that that's the first part of their platform they drop, right? Whether it's Andrew Yang or Barack Obama or um, Rick Perry. Anyway, back, back to the Yankees. So the Yankees have mythologized. They worship conscription. Uh, They worship military service. And um, these baby boomers are called to go. And um, there are many principled reasons they did not want to go. But they were also a generation constitutionally disinclined to go. Certainly... And this certainly split along North-South lines, right? Far greater support for the war in the South 
despite the fact that the South doesn't have the same citizen-soldier tradition. Well, these Yankee kids had a special power that they didn't even realize they had, which is that um, Canada was just going to wave them through. And Canada didn't just wave through draft dodgers. We waved through anyone who looked like they might be one. And I, I mean, looked obviously quite literally. Uh, because at last, the old, the upper Canadians had this incredibly intellectually vibrant generation of Anglo-Canadians of as pure Anglo stock as their own. And the draft Dodgers were, of course, the most educated. They were the wealthiest. Not They weren't at the very top, but they were the upper middle class. And so they were the whitest, the most educated, the wealthiest. These were people that um, upper Canadians had been trying to attract for... Um, the better part of 70 years. Uh, so we have this very curious thing that happens in Canada that fundamentally shapes why all these communities are here, which is the government doesn't even have to make a decision. Everybody just opens the door. Uh, the fact that, that Canada, which has been at the, you know, at the losing table on immigration since day one, is able to cream off the best and the brightest of liberal America in the space of seven years. Of course, entrenched politicians look past the politics those young men and women have at the moment they cross the border. They're confident in the structural and cultural features that will make those people their successors. So now there are uh, one of the things that I found when I've talked to um, people who left during the war, um, I haven't met any draft dodgers yet who actually dodged the draft itself. Uh, almost everyone I've interviewed um, has been draft adjacent. Uh, maybe they were dating a guy who was actually drafted. Maybe they would have been drafted when they got to that birthday, but they left before they got to their 18th or 19th birthday. Uh, oh, there were people who actually had gotten out of the draft, but felt sickened by American society and left anyway. I'm going to visit one of those people tomorrow. Uh, Bill Westfall. He was from like high society of Indianapolis and he came here and it was like, oh, my God, this is, I'm just going to get a set of bone china and off I go. Now, Bill is a bit of an exception because Bill immediately merged with the Anglo, with the upper Canadian elite. Um, with the story of the people who create these communities, of course, some never merge with the elite. Some merge with the elite very late or in very strange ways. But they're all under this halo. They're affected by this halo that has been produced by this long-term uh, integration 
of British North America at the elite level, which the elite is then able to impose on the level below. So to give you guys a sense of the stats, um, 150,000 leave the United States to dodge the draft for Vietnam. 70,000 go to Toronto alone. You throw in Vancouver and Montreal, you're at 115. The rest of the world takes the other 35,000. The next biggest city for the war resistors is Stockholm at 3,000. So this is just a massive population exchange that in Canada is part of a larger project of rebuilding and redesigning the nation in liberal terms that Pearson begins in 1967 as part of his role as an American puppet who is supposed to be executing the Alliance for Progress plan that the Kennedy administration developed for vassal states in the Americas. Um, and that is hugely assisted by this, which should also make us think a little bit about what's really going on with the war resistors as American policy sees them. We might want to consider that this is actually crucial to the Johnson-Kennedy AFP strategy originally, that if Johnson's policies generate a bunch of um, liberal intellectuals moving to Canada, this, actu this actually works out great. Of course, the problem is that Nixon takes power and uh, Pearson is a Democratic Party puppet. He's not an American foreign policy establishment puppet. And so, um, uh, and so Pearson gets out of there pretty damn fast once he can see that uh, his bosses are out of power. Uh, but um, so we have to think about these communities that we're going to get into next episode. On the one hand, they're part of a mass resistance to an imperial policy of the United States of America that was wrongheaded and was ultimately discredited. We also have to understand them, though, in this other way, as a this is a group of people who receive highly favorable treatment because they fall into a bunch of identity groups that um, are not merely the most valued in the Canada of the time, but their, but their arrival actually fits with the key nation refounding policies <clears throat> that Pearson and Trudeau um, enact between 1967 and 1982. So a few words on the culture of these folks. We have to remember that back to the landers are not all environmentalists. The environmental movement is very much not a discrete and separate movement yet when this migration starts. It will be by the end of the migration, but in 1968, the environmental movement is 
fundamentalism is a concern that's growing in a number of other social movements, labor, feminism, uh, the new left, etc. And but the main environmental groups are still just Sierra Club <coughs> chapters, just those huge national networks of Sierra Club chapters that are not something the counterculture is participating in much yet, although they are starting to take over a few. Uh, so let's remember that the environmental consciousness is not so much what motivates this back to the land movement. It's more that the environmental consciousness that we're going to see is generated by the migration and the settlement choices of the migrants themselves. Okay, so that's, um, that's all I wanted to say for the monologue. Uh, questions, comments? Sorry, was I making noise that whole time? Okay, now I can hear you. Sir. Oh, uh, let me just answer Michael's question first. 70,000, so um, out of 150,000 total. So it's uh, just shy of an absolute majority of all war resistors landed so in Toronto. How many um, co uh, communes similar to the one by... Mr. Brown or whatever his name was, Fred Brown, were there? Um, we don't, we don't, we're actually only guessing. We're thinking it was close to 150 at the height. 150? Yeah, 150 small independent countries in British Columbia. So how many of them survived more than a year or two, though? Is there, is there any, any idea? Or? Um, well, Jim Cooperman, who's a Facebook friend of mine, um, Cooperman um, is, is writing that for just one region. He's doing this mm -hmm. micro history of the Shushwap where Zabarsky's commune was. And, um, and we still, we don't have accurate figures. This hey, is good to extract this sort of uh, lore out of people yeah, before they pass on. Well, this is what I've been like, just, but they're. Um, I'm amazed that some anthropology grad student isn't touring the province recording this stuff. It's like a huge, uh, right? Be perfect yeah. for an anthropologist. You could make your name on it. Yeah, yeah. And they're really getting to the sunset of this thing. Another five years, uh, we're pretty done. Yeah. They'll be losing too many people. Yeah. But, right, like, Alana still hasn't been able to persuade her mom and Scotty, who've known me since 1990. Um, to give the institute the data on that one concept. It's it's embarrassing, or they feel too protective of it? Or... I couldn't even tell you. It's not embarrassing. It's not that they feel... They do feel protective of it. And they... they Anyway, it's... Huh. But there's a lot of this problem. Cooperman encounters it all the time, and he's one of them. Huh. It's hard to extract out of people. I, I think what it is, is that um, it's like the um, transition from the Pharisees to the rabbis in, um, in like five seconds. It's the, we are actively proselytizing. Shit, that's not working. 
we will never proselytize. Uh, I, I think that's, um, I think that's part of it. I think that that's what happens when an ideology like develops certain kinds of, um, well, when it just gets punched in the face too hard. Um, yes, the universities, uh, the expansion of the universities is crucial. And I, I cut that cause it's in another lecture somewhere else, but, um, yeah, the expansion of the universities is um, is a major factor because it's the second wave of expansion. The first wave of expansion is in the late 40s and produces all kinds of splits and causes J.R.R. Tolkien to tell a lot of lies uh, for the next uh, 25 years uh, because Tolkien epitomizes how people reacted to the first thing which was that the venerable departments refused to be expanded. And so then all the humanities money went into the social sciences. And so you, so the, the people in like classical studies and English literature and history and whatever wouldn't expand their departments. And then their knowledge ended up being taught by their, their subject areas ended up being taught by sociologists and anthropologists who had totally different methodology, totally different thinking. That creates the baby boomers who are, they have these credentials, but they're missing all of these cultural exemplars of a classical education. And then, um, and then like, well, and so that's the, uh, that, that's, a, uh, that's the baby boomers' parents. And then the boomers, um, the universities are expanded for them and it's a similar thing although some disciplines become friendlier so like English and history just go for the money and massively expand in the 60s whereas classical studies just keep slamming the door on people's feet uh, and um, so because it's this combination of demand and consent by the establishment, the growth patterns are utterly bizarre. Now I notice people have been typing questions, they've been going across the screen and I don't know where to look for them. So what's in the chat that I haven't answered or dealt with? Can somebody see it? Okay. Why do I not know how to use anything anymore? Alexa asked a question about Elizabeth May. Oh, okay. Well, let me, okay. What's the, um, oh, here we are. I've just found chat. Um, yeah. So yeah, no, it is, it's a huge bump, Michael, uh, for the uh, population of Toronto. It, um, uh, uh, even though of course it's over many years, right. It's because the resistors keep coming until the amnesty under Carter. So it's quite a few years. So now Elizabeth May, um, she did get involved with the Sierra Club, but no, she's actually much more like one of our people here. She does come from money, but um, she was part of the, um, um, uh, she was part of this sort of larger community of back to the lander types in the Maritimes. Most of them were, locals who joined the social movement. American migration wasn't a big factor, but people like Loby Dotton and um, David Orton and Elizabeth May um, 
they, uh, I mean, Orton was a working class English guy who saved up some money and bought some land in uh, Nova Scotia. Uh, May obviously comes out of a out of a more elite uh, scene, but these people are all part of um, the first, well, the second Green Party and third Green Party in the world, the small party of Canada that ran in 1979 under May's leadership. And uh, the small party crew were, yeah, hugely represented uh, back to the Landers. Those were almost all of the candidates. Uh, And it was mainly... Um, a regional Atlantic thing. Um, one of the things that does happen, of course, is that all kinds of Anglo-Canadians get involved in these things, particularly after the Americans arrive. But there are already these, um, of course, they're part of the same culture. They're listening to the same media. And I think May is just an honest to God entrant into that. She's not from the sort of Prescott Bush or uh, phase of the Sierra Club. She's much more from She's more the, so the Sierra Club is a democratic entity sort of from like the mid 60s to the early 2000s. And she's the one, she's one of the people who sets the democracy down. She shuts the democracy in the Sierra Club down. um, Whereas, um, but when, when she would have got involved, it would have been part of the democratization of the Sierra Club initially. Okay. What did I miss here? Um, oh, uh, David Orton. Well, David Orton um, had the distinction of, uh, I've only met him once and he screamed at me the whole time. Uh, he called me names. It was really something. Uh, so um, I'm sure, uh, I, I'm glad your father got the credit for uh, preventing him from getting a job. What was the job he wanted? He was a sociology lecturer at Concordia. Oh. And, and my father basically said, this person won't read any actual sociologists because he's a Marxist and he doesn't believe in this bourgeois literature. But he doesn't read any Marx or other Marxist thinkers either. I don't know what this person actually thinks, but he's lecturing <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> and he said that publicly, like he put that in the newsletter. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's lovely. Well, yeah, it was uh, it was pretty weird. I uh, yeah, I met him in the Green Party office in BC and began yelling at me within three minutes. It was dramatic, uh, but I guess I've always been a conversational accelerationist. Uh, okay, now um, other. Other questions about the, the baby boom and the raw materials before we, we move to the specifics of this crew next week. Okay. Last words. All right. Okay. Well, um, we'll, uh, we made it to uh, 53 minutes. Um, we had a pretty decent length class last time, uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm not racked with guilt about this. And um, yeah, so I'll see you in five days. See you then. Night, comrades.